Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 14. I'm the host, Dan Holzman. I'm assisted by my wife, who does all the engineering, the lovely Karen Holzman. And today I'll be talking with Mark Fay, better known as Mark the Knife, or as the world's most dangerous comic. We talk about his early days with Laser Vaudeville, touring with Jim Rose Circus, America's Got Talent, Letterman, and a whole bunch more. I'm sponsored by the International Jugglers Association, the IJA. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. Join the greatest group of jugglers in the world. Join the IJA. Now sit back, drop everything, get ready to listen to my conversation with Mark the Knife. Welcome to the Drop Everything Podcast. My guest today is the fantastic Mark Fay, also known as Mark the Knife. Uh, how are you doing out there? You're in Chicago, Mark? Is that where I, you're talking to me from? Yes, I am, Dan. It's, I'm doing very well. Thank you uh, for having me. Sure, my um, pleasure. We go way back, but for the people who may be not familiar with you or haven't seen you perform, uh, you're also known as the world's most dangerous comic. How do you sum up your acts for like a potential buyer or for someone who hasn't seen you? Give me the one or two sentence version of who is Mark the Knife. I'm a, a comic, a juggler, a magician vaudevillian of sorts juggling kind of stuck with me but it's it's like a roller coaster ride with danger and comedy mm, i like that roller coaster ride with danger and comedy i think i'll start using that myself <laughs> no that's trademarked all right that's trademarked now i see i went on your website you don't really have too much mention of juggling do you think that being a juggler in this modern time has any kind of negative connotation? Is that something you try to stay away from? No, I don't think so. And I'm surprised that there isn't more about juggling on there, more of the flashy stuff. If you go to my YouTube page, you'll see most of the links that I've uploaded will have juggling in there as a tag. Just I do consider myself a juggler probably before a magician and a comic before a juggler. Cool. Well, we'll have, we'll have a link to your YouTube site so people who want to see you in action can go there. Let's right. start with a little bit of a background. Were you, were you born and raised in Chicago? I was born uh, near Southside Chicago, just a bit to the west on 22nd Street at St. Mary's. And that's why I'm still here is I love the city and I can't leave. I, I've enjoyed the touring and I know I have to move elsewhere to kind of be successful, which is only... To say success, I'm not trying to get rich. I've never done this for the money. I've done it for the love of it. But I like to work a lot. And in Chicago, I can't. So I have to fly elsewhere. Where do you think would be a hot spot for you to move to? Do you have any places in Vegas? Vegas. Yeah. Vegas is made for me, mm. I think. Now, do you come from a, a show business family? Anybody else in your family uh, in the performing arts? No. Uh, my dad was a second-generation tool-and-die guy who was the life of the party, and I think that kind of bled onto me and made me want to be that that guy. And when I grew up, I didn't have much attention. I was 4'11 till my sophomore year and picked last in class. So juggling became something that I could do that others couldn't. And I learned when I was 12 years old from my cousin – and then my brother could also juggle, and he was better than me. But then when I was 16, I saw Anthony Gatto on The Tonight Show and also in old IJA, the competition from 86. And I, in my feeble mind, thought I could compete with Anthony and started practicing literally 12 to 18 hours a day. Sometimes I would get just like four hours sleep, get up, and I would just go outside on the weekends. That's what I would do. And at high school, I'd bring my props to work with me or to school with me. Now, when you first started, did you almost immediately think, this is what I want to do professionally? Did it become... Uh, well, that, that's a story, too. I started as a magician when I was eight, and then it went over to juggling. So I've always kept up with magic and do magic in my act. The, the night, I saw the Karamazovs on Showtime, and I thought, wow, that'd be really cool and fun to pass. And then I started going to a juggling club where I met Paul Bachman, who is one of my biggest mentors, along with many other jugglers. I came home after juggling and, and hanging out at Paul's, who would just show me videotapes endlessly. And you guys were on Raspinis, were on The Tonight Show. My mom rushed me in the living room, and I watched you guys. And that was the moment that I realized that that would be my profession 30 years ago. So seeing us prompted you, you said, well, hey, if those guys can do it, I can do it. No, it was the way you did it. It was the, the edge and the comedy, and Karamazovs are great, and it's very funny, but 
it took it to a level that that I just clicked with. And I like, I consider you guys more, you're amazing jugglers, but the comedy always shined in that. So were you always interested in being a talking juggler? Was there ever a time that you started out performing silently or to music? No, I, yeah, I was a competitive juggler and I did uh, juniors in 87. And then we competed against you guys in 88 in Denver, which was our horrific show. Preliminaries went great, got to the stage late because of uh, miscommunication with a ride. And our opening piece was bouncing balls. Five, we were doing five each lift bounce turned towards each other and started bouncing pass juggling. And that was before anybody did bounce pass juggling in 88. Mm -hmm. And the floor was this old vaudeville house that I've worked three times since. And it was warped beyond belief to where, you know how with ball bouncing, you got to bring a slab with you now or a special stage. Sure. So we were getting dead bounces and they were coming up short and and the, the pattern just disintegrated. And we struggled through maybe five drops. And from there, that just permeates and gets worse and worse, and it can. It was an avalanche at that point. So by by getting there late, you didn't really even have a chance to try the stage. So you, the first time you're out there, not at all, not oh. at all. We walked out there, looked at the lights, went back to the dressing room, got dressed, and then no warm up went out there. So that's a good good tip for jugglers. Whatever you're going to do, try to as much as you can duplicate the experience in rehearsal or practice, because if you go out there, you have no idea what the stage is going to be like. Then you go, oh, this, this stage sucks. It's too yeah. late at that point. It was actually, you're, you're right. That's a great lesson. And also warming up. We were doing technical juggling. And now with comedy juggling, with what I do, I don't need the warm up. My act is designed to warm myself. But by the time I get to that point in the end of my act, I'm doing more difficult things. I'm already warmed up. Yeah, I agree. Because I always like to start with a routine I call uh, the bouncing pole which is a routine where I bounce a ball up these drum steps, I catch it in the cup on top. And one of the reasons I like to start with that is simply because I don't really have to look up, I don't have to really do too much with the lighting. And I also like to sort of work towards the more difficult tricks as I progress through my act. I think that's a very good strategy. Well, I think the audience also can realize it. And one thing I always talk to people about that want to be a professional juggler is you're not juggling for jugglers like at a convention you're juggling for people and you should create your act to be that way yeah very smart because you see a lot of jugglers now they they put together youtube videos if they have an act where jugglers can appreciate the different side swaps they're doing or the different variations they're doing but not necessarily structured for your lay audience who basically wants to see some excitement wants to see a progression that they can understand no, very true. Differences in patterns. Side swipes look very similar. But when you do a cascade compared to reverse cascade, there's a difference. But then you go to a shower and that's a whole – the audience really can see that pattern. Yeah, no, it's like I think uh, Dick Franco once told me about how you do something above your head, you do something lower down, that, you, that the, even the differences in body position were very important. Now you're on this side of the stage, now you're on that side of the stage, as opposed to sort of staying stationary – and showing the audience what looks to them like just the same thing over and over again. Right. No, that's a great, great lesson. Now, so you got involved with the IJ kind of early, and you, did you did you start with a duo? So what was your partner's name, and did you want to be a duo act? And if so, what led you to become a solo? We had a whole group of people. There was five originally, and it came from our gymnastic club. I was always a gymnast, and uh, we ended up, whittling down to three of us, Jim Cumperson, Kurt Bonham, and I. And then Jim kind of went off and was doing gymnastics, and Kurt stayed with it for a while, and he became my partner. We were all up in the air, and that's what we competed as uh, in 88 in Denver. Mm-hmm. But in 87, we competed in juniors. It was my last year to compete. And I, I had, the stage was really slippery. I had some drops. I lost by like a hundredth of a point to David Kane, which David had a great act. And my partner, Kurt, won first place. He did great. Yeah, I remember him from, I think we worked a Renaissance Fair together. Uh, you we were, were partner. Yeah, we were doing King Richard's Fair, and we were swapping stories. That was one of my first gigs, like 87, around that time. That's actually the fair where me and Barry first started. That was our first job together as the Raspini brothers. I think it was quite a few years before you. I think it was eight yeah, it was. two, but, perhaps, we started. And it was that was King Richard's Fair in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Yep. 
That's by the it. Fallen Tree was our first show. And we got advice from Cliff Spanger. I think you know Cliff. He used to be with... Uh, oh, Jerry. yes, I do. The dancer. No, he was a, a, a tightrope walker. Oh, okay. No, I know who you're talking about. There's and his two. advice was to pass the hat before our final trick. Good advice. Well, Very it good for advice. him because he was a tightrope walker whose last trick was to climb an inclined rope to a high position in a tree. And it would take him a while before he could get back down. So it made sense for him to pass before he did that final trick. For us, we did it one time where we stopped. We're going to do our, our knife pass round was our final trick at that time. And so we passed the hat before the final trick. And we did okay, but we realized that wasn't for us. But the most important thing we realized was we can do this. You know, yeah. we made money in the hat. And at the time, we traveled across country with no money, no contract. And we knew if we didn't make money... Basically, we wouldn't be able to get through the weekend. So uh, it was a little difficult, but it was nice to know that we made money in that first show. So what was oh, your yeah, first yeah. Um, professional type of experience? So you, you, got, you got into juggling very seriously, very fast. At what point did you start doing professional gigs? Uh, we found an agency and we started doing things around Chicago at like the Field Museum. Uh, I started, we started street performing, uh, Taste of Chicago. The Renaissance Festival was one of the first of them. Uh, we started working at a comedy club called Who's on First back in 86, just doing really silly stuff. I'm surprised they let us in the club. But that was my learning experiences. My biggest learning experience was the comedy club. So what did you learn from working in the comedy clubs, and how did that inform your career and your act from that experience? Well, it uh, early on, I, I think comedy is kind of like a drug. You know this. When you make someone laugh, it's a powerful thing. And it's so, it's not that I, I, I want to do it. I need to do it now. It became such a part of me. And with juggling, it was, I never wanted to give it up because I had a niche that I developed in the clubs. And I realized, and I was trying to do seven balls in front of audiences and stuff. And they didn't get the difference between that and five balls. It was how you did it, how you presented it, how you set it up. Then it can make a big deal and an impact on how difficult the trick is. Uh, and then eventually it became this danger stuff because I would go on stage and people would just like, I would set something up and they would yell chainsaw. So then I had to juggle a chainsaw and figured that out where I think that at that time, the only guy doing it was Robert in Venice Beach, uh, not Butterfly Man, but the- Yeah, Robert Gruenberg. Right, or the Gumby Head and was doing that. You called him the Gumby head? Did he used to wear a Gumby well, head? Didn't he? Yeah, he had a Gumby head he used to wear on his head. And uh, But what a great trick. And being so young, I didn't have anything else. I kind of went and I feel bad. You know, he, I, I always give him credit as being the first one I ever saw do mm -hmm. it. But I, now I don't even juggle a chainsaw on my act anymore because it's been done and everyone does it to death. And so I've created different props that are just as dangerous. Yeah, I think the first person I saw do chainsaws was James Marcel. James Marcel. Yeah, he changed his name. He, um, gosh, I forget what he changed it to. He became an actor, and his he was a related. He had a relationship with Kirstie Alley. Wow. So uh, yeah, and the thing I remember about Robert Gruenberg, the original Venice Beach chainsaw juggler, mm -hmm. was that he got on the Tonight Show. And then he bragged to Johnny Carson about how much money he was making. Oh. And then was audited by the IRS. Yeah. And had actually was busted for tax fraud or tax evasion because of his experience, his experience of bragging on Johnny Carson how much money he made on the weekends at Venice Beach. Didn't something happen to Michael Collier? Or Michael Collier, the stand-up comedian? Yeah, he was amazing too. Venice Beach guy made a lot of money. They well, came that's after the thing that. about working on the streets. If you make a lot of money that's undeclared, perhaps declaring it on national TV is not the best way to go. No, no. And you have to declare something. I mean, uh, you, you have to do taxes. Jugglers, I know we're jugglers, but do your taxes. Yeah, you have to declare an income and you have to declare the, the checks and the things you receive. And if you make money through tips declaring most of it or all of it like I do is, is the best way to go. Me too. It, it's a question of ethics, though. I think it's the way we were brought up, Dan. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so you started in comedy clubs. Were you uh, doing this as a duo or were you a solo by this time? Well, the first 
few, I mean, the early days, Kurt and I worked as a duo. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to say stole, but we tried to, you guys are such an inspiration to us that it became kind of that thing where now we're passing around somebody. We ended up doing the cigarette out of the mouth bit. I know what that, I'm sorry. So I felt, I, I talked to you at a convention about that. I had a cat on my lap that was oh, no problem. distracting me, and that's what the, what the noise was, I just realized. Oh, okay, yeah, there was kind of a bell noise in the background, but we've yes. eliminated that now. So if you're listening and you, you heard a bell noise, that was Mark's cat, and that will no longer be part of the podcast. No, okay, uh, back to it. We did a lot of things that were very similar to what you guys were doing, and I felt bad about it, and I think we even borrowed some jokes, and I hate to say stole because I really have, in, in my days now, I strive to be original. So... Then once I got to a solo act, it was a different act. And, and I had been working the clubs long enough that I learned to structure. And comedy is definitely a technique. The techniques, and we talked about this before, the technique's not going to progress the way a juggling technique does. But you learn that technique, the little tricks around writing jokes, and you get better and better at it. Um, in 30 years, there's not going to be someone who's superiorly better than someone in the old days, like, you know, the old guys, we talked Buddy Hackett and Lenny Bruce, but I think there will be their equals to come. But in juggling, in our, my 30 years of, of being involved, or more than that, the, the technique is, it's unbelievable. And I'm, I'm curious to wonder, how, what do you think the reason for that is? Well, a lot of it is the access to props that maybe the older jugglers didn't have, the access to the internet where people can see what's possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were also some coaches who came into play, uh, like Benji Hill or somebody who I was thinking Javi Burgess or Javi Burgess, who actually had a technique that they, maybe they brought from something else like gymnastics or circus. Uh, there was also the influence of a uh, Sergei Ignatov probably in 71. Yeah. When people saw like five club back crosses, the 11 rings, nine rings. So once people see what's possible, I think they, they can emulate it easier. But like I, you're saying. Like in comedy, it's hard to say, well, the technique in comedy has improved so much that the comedian can be funnier than, like, let's say a Rodney Dangerfield. Right. But in juggling, you look at the number of guys doing seven clubs, even sometimes amateurs. And when we were going to our first uh, IJ conventions, even the ability to do five clubs for, let's say, a minute or two, like uh, Peter Davison or Barrett Felker at that time, really stood out as being extraordinary skill. No, no, I agree. I remember my first conventions, I, I, I juggled five clubs in my act, but there was a handful of people that could actually just do five clubs, let alone triples or singles was not even seen. This is, you know, in the eighties, but now I, I totally agree with you. It's the internet and accessibility to see what is possible. And there's in juggling, there's no can't. It's just, I got to keep trying till I get it. And the same thing in gymnastics. That was we were taught, you never say can't. And mm-hmm. if you get that in your head, your practice ethics will improve and increase. And I think you get to the point where failure is just, I mean, you're going to fail. That's inevitable. But it's keeping going and trying to do it. I was lucky to have Paul Bachman. Paul, like I said, after juggling class, I would – or. Uh, club, I would go over there and watch these videos and he'd be like, have you seen so-and-so? And then put it up and have you seen so-and-so? And and he would lend me these six hour long tapes and I'd go home and I'd duplicate them and then watch them over in slow motion. Like you're saying, Sergey Ignatov and Bobby May and all these acts that I was exposed to when very few jugglers at that time were. And the internet now has blown that open to where, you know, you'll practice for an hour, get one trick and then someone will see that and be like, well, that's possible. I think one unfortunate side effect of the the internet was when we saw jugglers, we really only saw professional jugglers. Like uh, we had a gentleman in our area named John Luker, and we'd go over and we'd see Francis Brunn, Bobby May, Dick Franco. You saw uh, videotapes of their acts. Right. You saw what they did on stage or in the circus during performances. You didn't see like a juggler, you know, going into the park and editing together an hour's worth of video and showing his five best tricks. Right, right. So to me, it was always people would say, oh, this guy's a great juggler. And they would mention uh, a juggler who I would say, well, what, where has he worked? What's his career been like? So to me, a great juggler doesn't just juggle 
technically well, they've had a certain breadth of career, a certain breadth of experience. Like it's hard to compare like a Volva Galchenko to a Francis Brunt and say, well, they're both great jugglers. But in my mind, there's no comparison. I mean, technically, there might be a guy who can juggle seven clubs, but you still can't go, oh, he's as great as Anthony Gatto, who right. does the same thing night after night in Cirque du Soleil, where someone else does a, a similar type of, of trick, but does it in the park when nobody's watching and had 10 tries to pull off his best run. Yeah, no, I don't think that negates their skill or ability, but I do, I'm more impressed with the professionals that can do that. Like Anthony is the exception. He's, I mean, very few people, you know, Jason's done some, Garfield's done some great stuff too. And and, and um, we had a shoebox tour here at my house, Wes Peden and Jay Gilligan. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Both both incredible monster jugglers is to borrow a term from Paul Bachman. There's a monster. <laughs> <laughs> They're monstrous. Yeah. Uh, so let's go talk about some of your early professional experiences. I was looking at your website and it, it saw that you had toured with Laser Vaudeville. Quite a few jugglers uh, were the third member of Laser Vaudeville. Could you give us a little uh, background on that and what that experience was like? Um, sure. It was, it was very... Uh, educational at that point i think i was doing incoming cat by the way another mm -hmm. there's another one with the bell i gotta take off okay but i was introduced to carter brown uh while i was working at windy city circus and ed sheehan he was coming through town ed sheehan introduced me to him and like a couple weeks later he was looking for a juggler and i was ready to go i think i was 19 and i moved up to canada with him Mont just below Montreal in a place called Hemingford, Quebec, and we started this show. And he had had this concept for Laser Vaudeville for a while, and he tried to do it with a rope spinner, but it really kind of wasn't there. And then when he was up in Canada, he was basically hired to do his hoop act, and I was there to do a juggling act and a Wild West show. And we started working on the Laser Vaudeville premise, which in the early days was a show about recycling. And we tried to, we had booked colleges and we went out and it just did not, uh, it wasn't working. It was, we did black lights, lasers, magic. We had uh, an acrobatic routine, did a table slide clown act. He did his ropes, I did whips, uh, knife throwing came in then. Well, I'd been throwing knives much longer. I mean, I didn't just start throwing around somebody. That's a whole other podcast. Mm -hmm. So we realized this formula wasn't working. We just broke it down to be a vaudeville show. And it's like, okay, what do we do well? And we brought out some of the comedy routines that we did and restructured them uh, with Kurt and I. And then I did my straitjacket juggling routine in there, which Dick, I was very proud. Dick Franco called one of his favorite juggling acts ever, which coming from Dick is high praise. So could you explain what that was? It was a straitjacket juggling routine. Uh, there's a point where we were juggling around somebody and we were doing plungers and machetes. And then I end up going crazy, suggesting all these other things. And Carter comes and knocks me out with a pan to the back of my head. And I go unconscious while he tells the guy who we've been passing around to catch him. And where I go stiff, lean into this guy, and no matter how hard they tried to catch me, I could, I could spin out of their hands and hit the floor. Mm. So it was basically, it's three stooges, slapstick. You know, all of a sudden out of the blue, you got this guy running with a pan, smack, <laughs> catch him, and he runs off stage, and this guy's left, and I spin crashing the floor and Carter comes back and he's like, what, what did you do? <laughs> and he's holding a straight jacket and he goes, hurry, we got to get him in this before he wakes up. And they put me in the jacket and I wake up and I try to attack the audience member back in the audience and then come back up on stage being very embarrassed and saying, well, I guess I should do my juggling act for you now. And I had a little teeter board set on the side of the stage. I say, before I juggle in the straight, or I say, uh, now for my straight jacket juggling routine and they throw balls across and I try to catch them and I can't they bounce across the stage And then I had the teeterboard set up and I go before I juggle for you I want to do a trick and I do the old uh, ringling ping-pong ball to the nose balance mm, But from a teeterboard. Yeah, so it sticks to my nose balance and they all clap and then I realize I can't get this off because my arms are stuck in a straight jacket so then it's the situational comedy of me trying to shake this ball off and it ends up hanging from a long string. And I drop that and I go over to the other teeter boards, which have the regular balls on them, and I kick them up and I go into the juggling routine. Now, so you worked with Laser Valve. This was before Cindy Marvel. 
So you yes. actually were very early on, uh, even the, the very earliest genesis of Laser Vaudeville. Yeah, I was, uh, the, I think, the second person to ever work with Carter. Now, then I remember at a certain point that you started working sort of more of an alternative type of circuit and that you got involved with uh, Jim Rose and the Jim Rose Sideshow. At what point in your career did that occur? That stemmed right after Laser Vaudeville. We had been working together for almost three years, from 89 to 92. I just, I wanted to be edgier. And I, you know, from co doing comedy clubs and stuff, there, there's an edge there. And we didn't have, we were doing family shows, and it's hard to bring that edge to a family show. So I, I wanted to leave and start my own thing. And we, we left on kind of awkward terms. And then Mike Weiser, a juggler here in Chicago, who did my first interview in 80s, I forget what it was, for Juggler's World, mm -hmm. he, he was like, there's this show, you got to see it, you'd be perfect for it. It's a Jim Rowe Circus Sideshow. So I call up Jim, he's at the Metro here in town, which we've worked several times since then. I, was, I, I told him I'm a chainsaw juggler and I can do this and that. And he's like, all right, come down to the show. And he, he caught me into the show and went and saw it. And that was the show. I, I did not do the Lollapalooza tour. Lollapalooza was just that year. And that's where Jim made his mark. Right. And that just blew him up to a new status, like Sam Kinison going on The Tonight Show and making 10000 the next day. So I befriended him, and he's, he goes, I want to make sure that you can juggle a chainsaw. I came to my house where I was staying at my parents at the time uh, in between. And he's like, let me see you juggle a chainsaw. And then at that time, I was actually working on doing the world record for juggling chainsaws, which would be four. And I had made these chainsaws out of airplane motors. And my dad helped me make the bodies out of aluminum frame, like skeleton. And they were, I forget how heavy they were, but they were light enough to do four. Jeez. But I had the worst time getting this thing started because you had to you had to heat a glow plug up and then you had to have a starter that you would go it wasn't just like a pull right. thing on a regular chainsaw and i couldn't get the thing running and so then i showed him video of me juggling a, a flaming chainsaw i used to do back when and and he's like all right but how do i know you're gonna be able to just and i don't know where it came up from but then i did the bobby may cigarette trick for him in my garage and he was like all right if you can do that i believe you and he hired me so for the people who don't know, uh, describe the Bobby May cigarette trick because you're perhaps only maybe uh, maybe 10 people did that in the, in the whole history of juggling perhaps. So describe that trick for people who might not know what the Bobby May cigarette trick is. Okay. Well, Bobby at the end of his act would basically have himself a smoke where he'd take a cigarette out, toss behind his back, catch it in his mouth. Then he'd take a wooden match, strike the match, toss it behind his back as it's lighting in midair, catch it in his mouth next to the cigarette, and then light the cigarette from the match. So that definitely impressed him because that would impress me. I know uh, Barnaby, who unfortunately passed yeah. away last year, was another one who did that. Yes, yes. So you, so you got the job. And, and Vince Bruce. And Vince Bruce, another, another, one, uh, another fantastic sad performer loss. who unfortunately has also passed away. Uh, yeah, two great performers, Vince Bruce, yes. and we'll put images up on the the audio, the uh, video version of Vince oh, Bruce yeah, and Barnaby, good. two fantastic jugglers. So you get this connection with Jim Rose, and you start to work with him. How long did that association last? And can you give us a couple high points from that experience? Oh boy, well he took me on around the world maybe three times. I've been around six times now, but uh, that was the time where I had been to. Santiago, Chile to do a TV show in, in Canada, and that was it. And then from there, maybe 23 countries I toured with them. It's three years long. That's how I kind of ended up into the rock and roll scene uh, and really kind of brought that. I mean, my whole act was danger and trying to make it everything intense. Mm -hmm. And so we were doing the knife throwing act, the lawnmower act, the... You know, juggling bowling balls. I juggle flaming bowling balls. What else do we do? You know, catching the bottle with my face. Yeah, I mean, one of your famous tricks is you get a bowling ball. Not only is it flaming, you decide to stick some steak knives in there. Yeah. And light it on fire. Then you kick it from your foot and catch it on the side of your head. Yes, which takes 7.5 pounds of pressure to crush it in and kill you, which I found out after doing a show and a doctor came up to me. And I was like, why didn't you stop me? <laughs> so are there any, uh, can you give us like one, one story that kind of maybe sums up part of what the Jim Rose experience is like, what touring with him was like? 
Ooh, uh, <laughs> everything coming up. I can't say like, oh, God, it was it was rock and roll sideshow that we he lived like a rock star. We were touring in these buses all over the world. I remember seeing Hamburg in Hamburg, Germany, Biohazard, and they had a problem with the security guards and the security guards left the stage and the whole audience, like 1500 kids, started circulating, doing a mosh pit on the stage and off the stage and didn't touch the band, let the band play. It was just like this surreal, crazy experience. There was so many things have happened like that. Mine's a bit of a blur, but. Like you say, he was like a juggler, but living the life of a rock star. Yeah, yeah, it was. I remember one time uh, we were in Shepherd's Bush, London, and I was juggling knives and I was doing double, 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 triple, 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 quad was the trick. And I threw a four and a half and the thing came down edge right on my left hand and cut it to the bone. Oh. I could I could spread it and see the bone, just the velocity of the rotating metal. And it, the old uh, adage, uh, I think it was from the Caramount's house, that say, they kind of want to see you hurt yourself, but they don't want to see blood. They, they, you want to have that in the back of your head, like, oh my God, what if? But you still have to instill confidence in them because if it's too what if, yeah. and there's stories, I'm getting on tangents to renegade why we lost that. But I cut my finger and I held it behind me. And Jim, not knowing this, was like, show it to the audience. And then he started yelling, we need a Band-Aid. He's bleeding up here. And hmm. it's dripping down my arm. And, and then I had to go into juggle a chainsaw and I had a napkin and duct tape wrapped around my finger. And then we went into the lawnmower, and the lawnmower had a hitch where the the thing that started it, the switch, was now broken. And so he's like, and he's going to balance this running lawnmower on my face. And he looks over at me. I'm like, oh, no, no. <laughs> and then uh, he ended up doing organ origami, which is uh, – he was one of the founders of that in a way. Let's say blank circus. Okay. The body part of the man. Oh, I see. His... Okay, we'll, we'll let people imagine what body part we're talking about. Okay. Yes, or puppetry of the. Yes. It became very popular, and that actually came from the Edinburgh Fringe Festival we did, where Friendy and some of the other guys who were the founders of puppetry and Jim would come back every year and show them the new tricks they did. So the lawnmower doesn't work, and Jim's like, "Well, what do we got?" I promised him lawnmower. He goes into this in front of like two thousand people. He whips it out. And starts doing the wristwatch, the windsurfer, ET. Just yeah, that and was the lawnmower. Maybe we'll go to the lawnmower, which is maybe a safer topic. Uh, <laughs> so the lawnmower balance was a, a stunt where you'd balance a lawnmower on your face, on your chin, I imagine, or your your. I'm sure it's your chin, not your nose, right? No, it is my chin. People do say nose, and I don't get that. But well, I think yeah, the nose would be kind of compressed by the weight of the the ch- of the lawnmower you're balancing on your face. Depending on the one you're using, it's a good 53 pounds to, I think you can get them now, about 29 pounds or so. And then people uh, from the audience or cohort on stage will take heads of lettuce or cabbage and then throw them into the running blades of the lawnmower. Uh, I like to use lettuce because uh, it explodes better. Cabbage is a little heavier. Gotcha. It's a, f- it's a funnier word, though. And yeah. most people think cabbage, but when you use cabbage – it will rot and smell really bad in the lawnmower. So and another good tip for people at home, if you're balancing <laughs> a lawnmower on your face, you want to use probably iceberg lettuce because it has a nice light consistency and, and explodes better when it hits the blades of the running lawnmower you have balanced on your face. And also will not hurt the audience like potatoes or carrots. Okay, that's good to know. And then, uh, so you, you have this incredible three years touring with Jim Rose. Well, I want to get back to the lawnmower for a second. Sure, of course. There's controversy on that. When I started doing the trick, uh, I did. I conceived it back around '92 mm-hmm. when Jim and I were trying to come up with new bits and stuff, and we were looking through Ripley's Believe It or Not book, and I saw this guy Bob Dozer, and I don't know any juggler that knows Bob Dozer, but he was back when Ripley's wasn't on TV. They would draw these things of these amazing sure. acts. And he was the balance guy. And he could swim the length of a swimming pool, I don't know how many times, with a canoe balanced on his chin. Wow. Swimming. Okay. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So I, I was going through his stuff, and he had where, if you remember the old push mowers, 
mm-hmm. guy pushing a mower, a rotary mower. He had three of them stacked up and balanced on his chin. So if it slips, it's going to cut yeah. him. It's going to shred him. And I was looking at this. I was thinking, wow, you should do that with a like a running lawnmower. And Jim and I were like, yeah, we could make a salad and we could throw all kinds of stuff in there, which we tried doing, like I said, the carrots and things right. will become projectiles, which is not a good idea. Eggs are a bad idea too. Stage gets slippery. Yeah. Looks great, but no. And so then that's kind of where that was born. And I worked on it with a gas mower for quite some time, which has a gravity fed carburetor. So you would have to flip the carburetor and then start the mower upside down, which when you're starting a chainsaw or lawnmower, it doesn't always do it first pull. And so then it was just, it'd be way easier with an electronic electric lawnmower. So that's what I use now. And I've, I've got a mower in New York. I've got one in Dubai. I have one over. No, I don't have one there anymore. Actually, I've lost a few of them, but I've probably gone through five mowers that have ended up at different venues. So this was a trick you conceived of having only seen an image of someone doing the, the push types. Yes. You know, Ripley's believe it or not, because I've seen this trick. So thank you for clearing this up. I've seen that trick done by other performers. No, it has at that time when I was touring Australia and I was doing TV shows over there, uh, Dan Bennett did it here on the tonight show mm-hmm. with Johnny Carson, which was always my goal to be on that show. And that we talked about this actually, and both of us, it's, it's kind of, I've, I've written jokes before where I've watched talk shows and seen them on there. Yeah. Like almost verbatim, but I, I didn't tell anyone and I didn't post it or before internet. And, and I think it just seemed like an obvious thing to eventually have happened. And from my understanding of where Dan came up with it, I think it was a backler. Yeah, that's, I got the same story from Barry Backler. And also Daniel Menendez mm-hmm. were all hanging out. And Daniel was like, you should balance this on your chin. And then Barry was like, you should throw stuff into it. So kind of similar to what Jim and I went through, and but totally separate. So when I came back from Australia, I remember Andy Head, a good friend of mine, comes up to me. So he's like, so you stole that lawnmower trick? I'm like, no, I didn't. Right, so neither one of you stole it. It was kind of a, a creation simultaneously. But the fact Pretty that much. you did conceive it just from that, that one brief spark of inspiration is a very uh, admirable creation. Because it's I, certainly a I, very I, memorable trick. Yeah, Bob Dozer, I credit him with it. Just He's the first one to balance lawnmowers on his face. Now, you didn't get on The Tonight Show, but you did get on David Letterman. Can you give us a, an idea how that came about and what you did and what that experience was like? Uh, it was, it was good and bad. You know, I, you think when you get on one of those shows that your career is going to change, but, and this is after Johnny had left. So I wasn't able to do that. And I didn't really want to go do his predecessor's show. Although Jay's a great guy. He's really nice. I just didn't feel the show. I, it wasn't my thing. And also the politics back in that day, if one show accepted you, you're not going to do the other one mm-hmm. at our, whatever level yeah. of entertainment. And so Letterman, I had been trying to get on because of stupid human tricks and I thought it would help my comedy career. I can go on there and be like, hey, this, this comedy juggler from Chicago. And they bid on the Bobby May trick. And I did it on there. I've been on three times. But the first time I did it, they wouldn't allow me to say I was a comic or a juggler. And they wouldn't let me tell jokes. Right. Because they didn't want me to be funnier than Dave. They wanted him to be set up with all the jokes. And But I did it. It was It was really difficult. I got bumped three times from the show for different tricks and they still pay you but yeah so you're backstage you're getting ready to go and yeah oh, sorry we've decided to go with this other person for the segment so that happened three times that had to be quite yeah. uh, quite daunting well it was nerve-wracking and then the, well the other nerve-wracking thing was the first time i was out there and they bumped me was for the cigarette trick and the way the ud sullivan theater is now is that it's not air conditioned but they have a refrigeration unit that's put on the roof so and when it starts it is freezing in there it's like 62 degrees i brought a thermometer in one time i forget what it actually was but it's really cold and the reason is is the lights are going to heat up the people will be in there the temperature is going to rise they don't want movie stars to be sweating their makeup under their collar and what have you and also when you're hot you have more you're more apt to fall asleep comedy is better when it's cold and you're up and you're it it's invigorating in a way mm-hmm. so where i was standing on my mark on the stage it was right in direction of this blower blowing down this cold air and it would blow the match out every time. So they didn't think I could do the trick. 
And then, so that when they brought me back again to do it, I tried to step off the mark a little bit. But if you watch in the YouTube video, or it's on my prom promo, uh, I'll have to post it, the full length one. It took me seven tries to do it. And the last try, it was blowing out, and you could see it blowing out, blowing out, and it barely gets a cigarette lit. And in my mind, I was thinking, this is it. If I can't light it off this, the best one I've had out of seven tries, I got to be basically like, I'm sorry, I couldn't do it. Right. Which, which is horrific on, you know, network TV. And, but it just lit and I did it. And Dave was like, I'm glad you stuck with it. And they had me back to do the bowling ball on fire and also, uh, the lawnmower trick on there. So perhaps you're the juggler. I've never seen anybody be back more than once. So you actually did three different segments of stupid human tricks. I, I think Brad Weston beats me on that. Actually, he's yeah, he's done and he's done the Tonight Show and Letterman, and I think he's done a few times, or I'm not sure, but there's been a few jugglers I think that have been back a couple of times or more. Yeah, a little trivia question: Who do you think the juggler has had the most appearances on the Tonight Show with both Johnny Carson and Jay Leno? Oh boy, passing zone. Dan Menendez. Dan Menendez. Dan Menendez had five. Wow. Between the two, he had five. So. That's that's pretty amazing. Awesome. And I'm actually number two with four. <laughs> so uh, to blow my own horn a little bit there. Hey, no, no, do. But one show I never did that you had a lot of success on was America's Got Talent. A lot of jugglers, a lot of performers have mixed feelings about that show. Can you let us know the effect that had on your career and how you felt dealing with the politics and the situation involved with America's Got Talent? Yeah, well, this is an interesting one. It was the first year I had done a pilot for the new gong show with Dave Attell on uh, the Comedy Central. And there was two episodes that were floating around HollywoodProducer.com. And I think I did Bowling Ball on Mower. And Simon Cowell found that video and really liked what I did. And they approached me and had me on the show. And this is before they nobody knew the show. They had to bring in talent basically. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, it's people are beating the doors down. So Passing Zone was on the same show as I as I did. We, we, we were there in the audience and they were maybe two roads ahead of me in the aisle because they were the first ones up. They were the only ones to know the order because their props had to be set for the first act. And they introduced the judges, you know, Pierce Morgan, Brandy and David Hasselhoff. And David comes out mock running slow motion like Baywatch sure. pretending, pretending to talk into his watch like it's kid and he comes out and says I want you guys to have a great time there's amazing performers here singers clap for all the dancers you see but not the jugglers oh nice literally he said that that was the intro in which John Owen and I lock eyes <laughs> and, and I give the what the yeah mouth to them and i'm like i'm so sorry i'm so sorry man have fun and they had to be introduced first after he said that and they did awesome you know they made the finals that year yeah and uh i think they did the best of any jugglers so far absolutely and they really represented juggling well because like you said there was a sort of anti-juggling feeling david hassoff a notorious juggler hater well, I think the reason behind that was they were this wasn't the first like audition show that they supposed auditions. They they were they did have a lot of bad juggling acts they had to sit through. Right. Because and so David I think formed his opinion through watching these acts. And by the end of that that season, he came up to me and and actually said, "You know what? You changed my mind about juggling and what it can be and because I did it more of it was just that I had a gimmick, yeah. that, that dangerous stuff. It definitely is a gimmick in a way. Well, it's good to have a hook. We had we had the checkerboard uh, guy on. If you, can, if you can brand yourself, if you can give yourself an identity in this business, it's a very powerful thing. I mean, just being I'm a comedy juggler nowadays is not really novel enough for people to go, oh, okay, you're getting in line with the other 50 comedy jugglers. No, you're right, actually. I tried to get Bill Fry to represent me, but... I think the dewdrop jugglers were too close to what I do or something because they're considered jugglers and do danger. Yeah. But our acts, our, our acts are completely different. No, uh, I was just talking to a juggler recently. They, they said, he said, they said, don't even apply. The, the, he went to a cruise agency. We have enough jugglers. <laughs> it wasn't even the caliber of the act. He just would have enough of those. 
Right. So, right. Uh, so for the people thinking about going on nowadays, do you still follow the show? Do you think it's still a show that you would go on again if the possibility I, came up? I've watched every episode. They've asked me back almost every year. France has got talent. It was, has been trying to get me to come over, but I don't know how that would work. I'm an American. If they're going to pay me, I'll go. Uh, I recently talked to the Kamikaze Fireflies. I helped them get on last year's episode of America's Got Talent, and they were flown to France to be on France's Got Talent. Mm -hmm. And their story was that they were backstage. They were going to do a routine where they passed torches. And at the very last minute, they said, oh, we had an act that burned themselves previously. You can't do fire. And this was literally 30 seconds before they go on. Do you have something else you can juggle? Wow. And they're like, well, no. So basically, they got a trip to France. They weren't even on the show, and they they got the, they got the payment. I'm not even sure if there was payment, but they got all their expenses paid, but unfortunately did not appear. So I'm not sure how an American juggler would go over on the France's version of America's Got Talent. I'm not sure if they wanted me as a guest spot or not, but uh, if if there is payment and I can get a contract out, and I'll do it. I you know I'm thinking about doing the next America's Got Talent just because the the first one was great for me. It the exposure I got. I got about 30-something million hits before, at that time, NBC deemed it their property. Mm -hmm. And it was copyright infringement to post any America's Got Talent on there. They pulled the one that was like 23 million. I got one up there. I forget how many it is right now. but And some dude in China has monetized it. So he's making money off my video. I see. But you had uh, upwards of 25, 30 million views. Yeah, I had over probably about 33 million. And then I remember... Uh, Oh, I forget who it was, but he, I w it was during the shoot of that. It went viral and was up 20. And he goes, Chris Bliss, just, he's got 250. Million. Yeah. He was, I was uh, just like, oh. His, his juggling to the Beatles song, it really was perhaps the biggest juggling viral video up to date up till now, I think. Absolutely. No, I think it definitely as a juggler, it could be a better routine, but I know Chris and I've worked with him in Zanies. He's come here mm -hmm. in Chicago. He does that one juggling piece and mainly all stand up. He's, great, he's that, a great comic. But yeah, he is. He's, he's very clean, not too edgy, but he's a great comic, great technician. But his that juggling piece, it, it connects to an audience like no other three ball routine I've ever seen. Well, his idea was I'm going to visually represent the music. It wasn't about because people go, oh, there's lots of repetition. Absolutely. Yeah. He's repeating the chorus. He says, I'm going to, I'm a, I think he even toured with Michael Jackson, the Victor yes, tour. He did. And his idea was, I'm going to recreate a rock show experience with juggling. So my juggling is going to be a visual representation of the music. Another very brilliant idea, well executed. And it shows you the connection it made for the people with the music of the Beatles, this visual show. And it wasn't about the juggling once again. It was about the feeling that the juggling imbued upon the audience. I completely agree. Jason did the parody, which was very impressive. I tell you what, even though there's repetition in songs, there's repetition. You have your chorus, your bridge, your verse. Mm -hmm. And what he did, it just, it had such an amazing connection with the audience. And I watched it live, I don't know how many times. And every, every single time, standing ovation. It was ridiculous. Yeah, and like I said, a, a great comic. He's not a guy who built himself as a juggler in the later part of his career. But you end your 45-minute stand-up with this demonstration of, of a wonderful juggling routine. Yeah, surefire, a standing ovation getter. It was great. He also coined really the great. term uh, about cruise ships, the mayor of Hackytown. <laughs> like if you go on a cruise ship, you've got to be the mayor of Hackytown. So I always uh, we shared a couple of stages with him as well. Now another place I really remember you from, and what we're getting towards the end, is the IGA conventions, especially you hosting the Renegade shows with one of our mutual friends, uh, the great Robert Nelson. Yeah. Can you kind of tell us about that experience? And perhaps once again, it's hard to sum it up with one story, but is there a story that stands out of your exploits uh, in that arena? Well, it, yeah, absolutely. It's the time I realized I needed to be a renegade. And back in the day, it wasn't like you were allowed on stage. It was kind of a club. You know, it started about 90, 85, 86, where professionals would get together in the corner of this gym and show off things that they're working on or just screw around, improvise. And it became the show the next year where Tom Renegade went and got lights and sound and a stage. And in 86, I was uh, 16 years old 
or seven, 16, 17, and I saw Robert performing. And they got to the end of the show, and it was outdoors. They shut the mic off. Or they sh- I think they shut, yeah, the mic off first. And he's like, I don't need the mic. He's like, I don't need the microphone. And he just drops it. <laughs> and he's just ripping on everyone in the audience. And you, you. And, 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 and it's funny. And, and so then they turn the lights off. And he's, he's keeping going, I don't care. You can hear me. You don't need to see me. And then they grab the stage. Each, like Tom and uh, like four people get on the stage, which is, I forget, a four by four rise or something small. And they pick him up. And without missing a beat, he just keeps going and they walk him down this street and he just gets quieter and quieter and quieter while still (laughs) still yelling at the same volume. And they just got it was just like this curtain close that that hit something in me. And I was like, I have to be a renegade. And there was other moments where I remember seeing Barry, uh, your partner and Frank Olivier climb up without pants on Mm -hmm. over the audience between these two poles. And pass clubs across the audience, and they would drop them, and then the people would throw them back up to them. And it was just this free, free form entertainment that was so edgy that I really wanted to be part of. I remember the first time I was on stage was with Frank Olivier, and we did uh, the Booger Beagle, where he, we had a, a balloon, he sucked it through his nose, out his mouth, and then I blew it up through his mouth, and it blew out his nose, mm-hmm. and tied it off, and then tied a beagle a dog head at the end of it. <laughs> and he's like, look, it's a booger beagle. And then that was it. That was my first time on Renegade. And then I think I had Jeff Damon kick a cigarette that was lit across the stage into my mouth. Yeah, I think and- at a certain point, the IGA realized that it definitely ha- wasn't what we would call family entertainment. No, it was a midnight show and it went till three in the morning. But and even though it was a midnight show, they didn't realize that a lot of kids would stay up. Yes, they did. They did. And there were some epic, epic renegade shows over the, the years uh, at the IGA festivals. A lot of them because of the exploits of yourself and uh, the Butterfly Man. Well, we would actually, when we co-hosted and worked together, we would uh, always have dinner together and discuss the shows we saw, what we could parody, what we saw in the gym. And we would try to actually sit there and write jokes about what we were going to do, what we were going to say. I wanted to be prepared. I'm always the type of guy that I will go and improvise, but I need to have something to fall back on that I know is going to work. And so Robert didn't really like to do that. So he would go off script and try to throw me off when we did shows. He always put me on edge just because he liked, he liked what that brought out in me. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of, there's something about where if you're too relaxed, you're not going to have as good of a show. I remember doing SeaWorld, and we did 500 and something shows, five shows a day, six days a week. I remember having to rewrite my whole act. Same jokes, concepts, premise, but the verbatim was changed. And so I would have to say it in a different way and get the timing right. So that actually put me on edge to where I was trying to remember my act. And also it, it, it gave me just that little bit of an edge. Well, we're always trying to recreate spontaneity. Anybody who has a show they've been doing too long where it becomes too rote, you almost lose the meaning of the word sometimes. True. And sometimes you go, why isn't this joke getting the same laugh it used to get? And you realize, because I'm not imbuing it with any real feeling other than here's the line, which I've said a million times. So to have, like you say, a strong structure, kind of knowing what you're going to do, but willing to kind of go out there on the edge, I think we both agree that's the place to live. It's the most fun and I think the most satisfying. But if I'm doing a comedy club... I try to bring out everything that I know is going to work. Sure. Or if I'm a paid gig. Renegade, you're allowed to do that a bit. Now, speaking about being on the edge, we're getting towards the end. I have a couple of questions. First of all, what do people need to know about scorpions? Not to put them in your pants. Yeah, so when was the first time you said, I'm going to juggle, and at the same time, I think I'll put a scorpion down the front of my pants? Well, I was working with Jim Rose Circus, and we used a scorpion in the act to put in Enigma's mouth. This was back in 92, 93. I've always studied magic since I was eight years old and been very fortunate in that realm, too. But I came up with a trick where the scorpion basically picks a card out that you select Mm -hmm. from the deck, which later was borrowed by Copperfield, who Penn told me I should try to sue him. And I was like, are you kidding me? I'm going to get one pro bono lawyer's juggler. He's got 26 professional lawyers getting paid crazy. So it was a moot point. I don't remember the time I was like, let me put this in my pants. But the bowling ball, I remember the time I put knives in it was because they couldn't light the thing on fire after great white incident happened in Rhode Island. 
And I was like, well, that's not that impressive. So I was like, oh, steak knives after being right. marked the knife and the knife throwing stuff. And then the, the scorpion, I just, I don't know why and how that came to fruition, but it did. And I'm glad because it's, I mean, it's been repeated in movies now and, or one movie. Uh, it, it's the thing where people see me and they'll be like, oh, a scorpion guy, not comic or juggler. And anytime, have you ever been stung by a scorpion? 14 times I've been stung. I've got a pretty weird calcium deposit in my hand from one sting. I've been stung in the abdomen a few times, some bad stings there. there well, I thought I was being stung one time. I had four scorpions in my pants one time. <laughs> I don't know why. I was doing a cable access show for a buddy of mine, and I didn't know if they were – this is before I got stung for the first time, so I didn't know if they were stinging me or just pinching me. And they were, I had loose boxer briefs on, which is another fault. And they were falling down, trying to grab onto anything they can using their, their pincers, which are extremely loud. And I, I remember in the highest voice I've ever had screaming, they're on my, uh, cut, cut the tape, cut the tape. And I look over at Matt, Matt's given the keep rolling sign. <laughs> That's a <laughs> <And> good friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've got that. I'm going to post that to my YouTube account because it's one of the funniest funniest things I think I've ever had on film. Now, you, you're, you're also known as Mark the Knife, and before the podcast began, you're very proud of a new knife that you developed that you'd like to promote. Tell us a little bit about that. It's When I got into knife throwing, I was probably about 12 years old. I honed my skills at the King Richard's Fair. That was kind of my warm-up, and then met a man named Harry McAvoy. Harry McAvoy was the founder of True Balance Knives, and I bought my first knives from him back around 87, 88. I've always used his knife. He passed, unfortunately, some years ago. And I don't think his son is really upkeeping the business. And so if I lose those knives, there's no replacement. And I've tried to search out knives all over the place. There's a bunch of hack knockoffs from China. Brian Dubay made a decent knife, but not quite to the specifications that I like. And so for the past 10 years, I've been trying to uh, research everything that Harry taught me about the metal that he used to the balance point, the weight, the length, which all affects the rotation and how it pierces the board. I've now come out with a knife that I'm going to be releasing with uh, Three Fingers Juggling, who is selling juggling knives at the conventions. He's out of Michigan. I didn't want to just do the stamp and send it off to China to be done because I I feel that it would then I, I want to help him out. He helps me out. We make an exceptional product here in the USA. And it's going to be legal to use in the competitions for the knife throwing tomahawk competitions. I forget what the association name is, but if you Google knife throwing competitions, mm -hmm. it abides by all the rules. And then I'm coming out with a couple other throwing implements. I have a throwing sickle that I've worked on for a while, an axe that's coming out, and then smaller knife and a larger knife because it all varies the distance you stand away from the target. And these will all be available through Three Fingers Juggling. We're gonna, yeah, I'll have a, a link probably to my website that'll relocate over to Three Fingers. But if you go to markthenife.com or Three Fingers Juggling, you can grab them. Um, and we'll put up a link as well here on the uh, on the YouTube version of this podcast. It's it's early on in right now. I'm actually going to try to start a Kickstarter program and have some deals and discounts where uh, I've got a, a director I'm working with to try to come up with a, a comprehensive DVD that's going to go through everything about what I've learned and what Harry's taught me. You know, I'd like to emphasize don't throw around anybody because it's incredibly dangerous. And most knife throwers, and I'm knocking on the wooden floor right now, uh, because I have kept this incredibly safe and I've never taken risks with it. But don't throw around somebody. Everyone I've met has, has clipped their assistant and somebody's getting hurt and someone, you know, you can get killed. It's, yeah. it's nothing to fool around with. But as a sport, it's an incredible sport it, with respect. It can be done safely. And I, I think kids, it's, there's something about, it's gratifying when you stick a knife in that board. It's like getting a juggling trick in a way. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan myself. I, in fact, I had an old apartment before I, I met my wife and moved up here. And Are you talking about Sherman Oaks? Yeah, I was in Sherman Oaks at uh, the Horace Height Estates, and there was a connecting wooden door between my little bachelor bedroom and my little bachelor kitchenette area that uh, I eventually covered up with a, a large bedspread because if you took the bedspread away, you saw that it was littered 
with, <laughs> with, with, with knife punctures. That was my parents' basement. I used to. My dad was a tool and die guy, so I would make my own stars and knives and throwing spikes, and then I'd go in the basement and yeah, I would take the pictures off, throw where the pictures were, put the pictures back up. But then they realized there was some that were astray, and they took the pictures off, and it was just shredded. Yeah, it was bad. Yeah, I think a heart of palm or something like that. You know, a nice soft wood. And like you say, there's something satisfying about sinking the knife into the wood, especially when it sinks perfectly with sort of a, a, a perpendicular type of angle. But kids listening at home and all, all jugglers listening here, don't throw around people unless you're of the, of the accomplished level that of mark the knife. Well, I would say don't do it because there's a liability issue. <laughs> Just right, so report all your income and remember the liability issues of, hey, now we're at the very end. So... Well, I wanted to actually get sure. into why why I do knife throwing professionally. I don't know if you remember this, but when Kurt went to college, we came out to California to visit you guys, and I went over to Sherman Oaks. I had a little putt-putt golf course yeah. around. Yeah. Great place. But then I remember you showed me the public show, which I had to leave because we were doing the Renaissance Festival, and I saw Robert, Butterfly Man, and Waldo do the knife throwing act. Mm-hmm. And you showed me the tape of it, and I remember the effect on me was so great seeing someone because I'd never seen, except for that Johnny Carson clip, anybody have knives thrown around them. And they grab Robert up from the audience. He was heckling. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're, he's tied Waldo. up and he's brought up. And and he gets tied up and, and uh, gagged. Waldo throws up the one side and then in between his legs a couple times. And it had such an effect on me that that was the moment that you, I, you know, I can attribute you and Robert for me becoming a professional knife thrower. Well, it's my pleasure to have anything at all to do with the wonderful career you had, and I'm, I'm proud and happy to call you my friend. And thank you so much for being on our, our podcast, the great, fantastic, world's most dangerous comic, Mark Fay, Mark the Knife. Oh, thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Drop Everything Podcast number 14, my conversation with Mark Fay, also known as Mark the Knife and the world's most dangerous comic. Thanks to my sponsor, the International Jugglers Association. Information about that great group of jugglers who I've been involved with for over 30 years can be found at juggle.org. Join the greatest group of jugglers in the world. Join the IJA. Thanks to my lovely wife, who does all of my engineering, the wonderful Karen Holzman. Thanks to all you listeners, because without you, it would just be me talking to myself like I always do. But with you listening, I don't seem quite as crazy. So thanks a lot, and drop everything except when you're juggling.